0: Hello, this is David Abel, Chief Academic Officer of English language arts for Unbound Ed. Today we're going to be talking to Crystal Gonzalez. Crystal is the Executive Director of the English Learner Success Forum. In this role, she partners with national experts, organizations, educators, and content developers to increase the supply of quality K-12 instructional materials that meet the needs of the growing English learner population. Previously, as a program officer at the Helmsley Charitable Trust, she collaborated with K-12 organizations with a focus on teacher professional development, quality instructional materials, and advocacy for underserved communities. In this role, she worked with national English language learner experts to elevate the needs of English learners among grantees and her grant-making peers. She also consults with various national education foundations and organizations on English language acquisition and equity issues and she began her career as an elementary bilingual teacher. We are very grateful to have her on our podcast. Crystal, before we talk about your current work, I'd like to talk to you about your experiences in the beginning of your career as an elementary bilingual teacher. How did this work inform your current work with developers of instructional materials?
1: Sure, I was a fourth grade bilingual teacher in Houston, Texas, and I do recall my first day My principal came in and gave me, back in the day, it was printed out standards, a stack, a spiral of standards, and also my ELD standards, my English language development standards. And he kind of said, you know, you need to make sure you get through both of these by the end of the year. (laughs) Uh, As a newer teacher, you can imagine the fear in my face and and the feeling that I had. But thankfully, I had a number of veteran teachers in my school that took me under their wing, uh, really helped guide the direction. uh of, of what to do with the standards and the ELD standards, and got to work together on a lot of that stuff. I think we had materials that were mediocre, I would say, at that point. So in the context of my classroom, for example, most of the instruction was in English except for two subjects out of the day, and my students had been transitioning. So K through third were mostly in Spanish. They were tested in Spanish, and they got to me in fourth grade and it just swapped. They were expected to test in ELA and math in English. As you can imagine, that was terrifying for most of my students. And so, really, it was a struggle. I think, uh, as you know, I put in lots of hours, I didn't have materials that adequately provided that scaffolded guidance for my students. So, I spent a lot of my extra time adapting lessons for the various learners. I had a variety of English learners uh, from beginning level one all the way to proficient. Uh, but because of our school model, They were expected to stay in a bilingual program, quote-unquote bilingual program, to be 50-50. So 50% English, 50% Spanish. So I had a variety of learners, and I think taking all of that time, in addition to prepping and getting my instructional strategies down, it was a lot of work. And I will confess, there's times where... You know, I, I, I didn't do what was best for my kids now looking back um, and really, really needed some of that guidance. And I think as I think about what we're doing today, there's, you know, I think the unfortunate truth is um, our teachers aren't staying on board as long as we'd like them to. I've read a stat that said about five years is the average these days. And mm-hmm. so if we're thinking about that majority, um, many of whom are beginning teachers uh, that rely for the good or bad, but they rely on their instructional materials uh, to really guide their instruction, I think back to the struggles I had. <laughs> I was bilingually certified, I was trained, and I still struggle quite a bit to make that happen. So, a teacher that doesn't have that kind of language acquisition training, I can't imagine the challenges that come with that, and where you know some of the some of the instruction is just cut short just because one they they're not knowledgeable on it, or the materials just lack that that the integrated language into it. So. So that's really I really do think back into those days as I think about it, my current work and how this is really a justice issue. I think for the kids, particularly to make sure we get them the instruction that they the instruction that they deserve, but also for our teachers, I think teachers are not expected to write curriculum. That's just not what they're hired to do. Um, and imagine if we freed up some of that time to give them quality curriculum and content. Uh, to really let their own teaching expertise just flourish, that would be a game changer. So that's a lot of the motivation uh, of what I bring into my work today, and we'll never forget those challenges.
0: <laughs> you spoke about teachers that they shouldn't be writing curriculum. Do you think that's a shared understanding among the teaching force of this country, or maybe even more appropriately among the people who are leading the teaching force, the principals, the coaches, the superintendents?
1: <laughs> yes and no. I believe it depends on the context of your school, Mm -hmm. quite honestly, and when it comes particularly to English learners, you know, the types of programming in your school, whether it's mainstream or dual language and so forth. Regardless of that, though, I think overwhelmingly teachers say they could benefit from higher quality instructional materials. Across the board, I mean, there's surveys that were done out of the Council of Great City Schools, urban schools, asking their educators, um, and those there is a tremendous need there. And so it's um, you know over 80% of, of educators saying we need better um, materials for English learners, but also standards-aligned materials would yeah. be really helpful. So I say yes and no because I think there's still a lack of quality instructional materials in the hands of educators and teachers that we are in some ways forcing them to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we do really want what's best for our students teachers are going to do that they want they really want to make sure the kids are getting what they need uh so they will spend time adapting and principals will be expecting that of of themselves so i think again context matters but if we can help in any way to encourage you know the development of better materials for teachers of english learners i think that would be a tremendous asset a better, better starting place oh my goodness yes yeah
0: yeah Um, So you've touched upon this a little bit, but I wanted to sort of give you an opportunity to talk about your current organization. So talk to us about the English Learner Success Forum. Why this organization and why now? So we
1: actually began these conversations, I would say, about a year and a half ago. In my prior role, I was uh, at a national foundation. And my portfolio was based out of uh, off of PD and instructional materials for teachers. And one of the things I noticed in my portfolio was there was a lot of great organizations doing wonderful work on quality materials and just standards-aligned PD. But there was a lot of questions on how do we best support our English learners in that. And so we decided to bring some of our grantees together uh, that were focused on high-quality instructional materials. And we invited a number of English learner experts into the room, and we tackled that question. What would this look like? What do we need to be considering? What are the pros and cons to integrating language into these materials? And uh, we had about three meetings over the course of the year. Some were tough conversations about what this would actually look like. I think the challenge is we don't want to simplify anything and cut it down to, if we just do X, Y, and Z, English learners should be able to perform and do well. It's a much larger issue than um, just providing a couple of you know language supports within a lesson. We wrestle with that quite a bit, I think just even to this day. So at the conclusion of those meetings, one of the biggest takeaways that uh, we walked away with is there is a need for a neutral entity to really guide this conversation. And the reason we decided on neutral is because there are some fabulous organizations doing great work in this space on the English learner front. Institutions at you know universities, there's nonprofits, but very few of them are focus, focused exclusively on English learner materials. Mm. And so we know the best practices, we know the research, we know the strategies, we have all that. But they're focusing on all those other great things, but no one's really leading the charge on instructional materials. And so they thought it would be a great place to have a table where we could all come together, bring our research, bring our best ideas, and figure out a way to do this in, a, in an efficient way mm-hmm. and also in a collaborative way. The other thing that came out of that meeting is that we can't continue to work in silos. You know, English learners, uh, experts, you know, have been doing this work, but Um, For various reasons, we haven't been collaborating with the gen ed community as often. Um, On the flip side, uh, the gen ed community, when you'd ask, what are you doing for English learners, many of them would say, oh, we're leaving that to the experts. Mm -hmm. That's not our thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with those mentalities pushing forward, nothing really meshed, and we never kind of collaborated on that front. And so that's where we saw the promise in the English Learner Success Forum. So that's the why and kind of what what came of that. And I think now, why now is is it's a really exciting time. I think just nationally, not only is our our English learner demographic growing exponentially across many places and in places that are not accustomed to serving English learner, learners, I'd say particularly in the South, mm-hmm. uh, where you've seen over eight hundred percent growth in their English learner demographic, and they're asking the same questions: How do I efficiently and effectively serve this this demographic? So there's that piece of it. And then there's also, um, you know, I think many years after the standards have come into place, we're starting to see better materials and aligned materials. And I think now that we have an understanding of what those are beginning to look like, it's a prime opportunity to start with the newer developers that um, are willing to collaborate in in this effort. And so there's, I can tell you right now, um, as of today, there is not one uh, curriculum on the market that the field and teachers and experts agree uh, effectively serve our English learners in the in ELA and math. There's not one. There's some in the works that I'm really excited to see in the next few months. I have not seen them yet, but I, have, I hold a lot of promise in them just because there's been some intentional efforts on getting it right. And uh, we hope to learn from those efforts, but also to figure out a way to... Spread that knowledge beyond, you know, just sprinkles of developers here and there, uh, or districts here and there. But how do we provide the field guidance um, on a national level, uh, not only for developers that are creating new things? I think that if they're willing to collaborate and 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 work together, I think there's much promise there. But also, how do we provide you know concrete guidance for even districts and teachers, that have to do this. They have no choice. Their district's not going to adopt a new curriculum for three, four more years. And so can we help provide some practical tools for them as well? So that's the why now. And I think um, I think we're really excited about the potential collaborations we have up, up in, in the coming months. And more importantly, I think what, what drives me and, and I'm really grateful for is the number of English learner experts, practitioners, general education organizations that are all in. They're all Mm. saying, this is necessary, let's do it. How do I help? And how do I get involved? And I think that energy alone is really what drives, I think, this organization forward, but also, you know, me (laughs) in in every day that I wake up thinking, wow, I'm really really grateful that we've got such a, a strong force behind us.
0: This question was originally phrased, what do developers and instructional materials get right with English learners and what do they get wrong? I think based on how you answered <laughs> the previous question, I don't know if I'm gonna ask the first part of it because I think the answer is not much. Right. Or or nothing. So let's talk about like what's not there. Why do you think developers of instructional materials are not getting it right or not doing better in this area?
1: I would say the first thing is, you know, this this concept of differentiation, I think has been I think we all got training in it when we, we became teachers. Yeah. And it's still if you think about a traditional textbooks, for example, or TEs that are out there, they'll have a little box on the side is like how to differentiate for your English learners. And it'll be something very simple. I honestly saw one the other day that they're talking about a concept of covered wagons and their differentiation was showing pictures of various covered wagons and modes of transportation in that era. Which I think is helpful for access to it, but mm-hmm. It's not enough, right? Yeah. It's not enough for the students to, to, to understand conceptually what the actual lesson was about or the con- or the context of the, the actual text. And so I think there's still a lot of that happening in a lot of places. Um, the second thing I would say is that... Unfortunately, we're still seeing the English learner demographic as homogeneous. We kind of group them and say, does it, does it meet the needs of L's? Yes or no? Yeah. And it's not that simple. Right. Um, if you think about the, the, the varying levels of English language proficiency within that demographic, it varies. I mean, you've got you know the beginners mm-hmm. uh, that need very specific support in what that looks like for language development. And then I would say on the other end of the spectrum, in which is a growing problem in the U.S. public schools right now with our English learners, is our long-term English learners. And for those that aren't familiar with a long-term English learner, that's uh, technically for the U.S. Department of Ed, that's class- they classify that as a student who has uh, been labeled a classified as an English language learner for six, and they've been in the schools for six plus years or more, mm-hmm. and they are not able to reclassify. And so there's stats that are saying that over sixty percent of our of our um, secondary students are in that category, which means by the time they're graduating. They're not meeting the requirements of their district or state on their language proficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine how that has impact on the academic proficiency and, and the, yeah. the, the results that we're looking for there, too, in, in terms of quality learning. So I think that's, that's a challenge uh, still happening is that these materials don't focus. They need to call right out, who are you serving in the ELL community? Mm-hmm. If this is not for beginner English level one or two, call it out. Just so teachers know that they don't, you know, it's not a matter of checking the box that I covered my L's today. Great. And if there are, there are many are targeted at the middle. I'd say the middle group, but there are very specific guidance that need to be happening there. So I, I would say, if I were to say two things that are still not happening, is is kind of those those two those two areas. The last thing I'll mention that I I would say I hate to say that you know straight out they getting it wrong, but it's it's true is, is you know. When we're talking about English learners, they can be from all backgrounds and cultures. Majority of them are born in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do we look at these this cur- uh, curriculum and the materials associated with the text associated with it in terms of cultural sensitivity? Mm-hmm. And that matters. That matters greatly. And I think we sometimes undermine the importance of that. Um, and I think it gets increasingly more important as you get older students. Yeah those that are really looking to engage in in really exciting work and when you're looking at texts and contents, contexts that make no sense to you in your life, it's really hard to do that and I think that is still a big problem, I think just in, in, in curricula in general. Um, So I think though, I I can name a few more, but I think those would probably be the, the top three and um, that are all areas that we, we hope to um, provide some sort of guidance in our work as well.
0: Yeah, I mean the thing that you mentioned, the thought about a conversation I had with someone else about how the notion of argument is also very specific to the, the West. Yes. And how the the <laughs> no, and especially an argument backed by evidence in which you consider an opposing or counter claim, which is an ELA standard. Um, how that is there's notions of argument where you you just wouldn't do that, or those notions of argument is rude, and so students need to really sort of absorb this notion of this task that is counter to their culture and it's not just the language, it's mm-hmm. almost this, the, a culture that they have to sort of switch to in order to fulfill the standard, which, exactly. is, which is something that we, you know, can sometimes be, be very tone deaf to. Exactly. This is a great segue to, to this question, which is kind of uh, a uh, maybe verging on political so we've seen demographic data, you show the demographic data show uh, of increased uh, population of English learners in a lot of states, including surprising ones, um, such as South Carolina. And we've seen demographic data regarding the Latino population in the United States. Despite all that, this country has always been predominantly a monolingual country. And even though... And if I get this fact wrong, I don't mind you correcting me (laughs) on the radio. Even though the U.S. as a whole has never had a legal policy proclaiming an official national language, there are many states that officially list English as their official language. So this is the question. How does this linguistic hegemony, if we can call it that, play out in instruction aimed at English language development? Oh, that's a good question.
1: So I think a couple of things kind of come to mind I would say there's two states right now that explicitly call out English-only instruction. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's been ways around that. Mm-hmm. I will mention California just recently passed Prop 58, and I we've already seen we're already beginning to see some of the opportunities that are coming now that dual language and bilingual education is playing into that. With most recently, I don't know if you've heard this week, but they announced in uh, Los Angeles Unified that. Students that are entering school now, by the time they graduate, will be biliterate.
0: Oh, they did that?
1: They they raised the bar. They oh. definitely raised the bar. And I think that is, one, a political statement just in and of itself for a district as large as Los Angeles Unified.
0: Which has the most English language learners. Yes.
1: The most in the entire country. To say that there's tremendous value in what these students bring to our schools. Yeah. Um but secondly, I think it's an economic issue, right? Like, what what are we what are we bringing into that? And I think we've got a lot to learn from places like that. But I think that mentality is still, it hasn't come all the way around in many places across the country that mm-hmm. goes down to the ways in which we look at language yeah. and uh, providing that support for our English learners. There's some surprising places, I would say, too, like Utah. Utah has made some tremendous changes in their dual language programming And you've got political figures there talking about the value of that asset to to their economy. Mm. When folks are able to be exposed to what that looks like, and I say folks because I can't remember the the leader, I want to say was a governor of Utah, Mm -hmm. is actually somebody who spent some time in another country and sees Mm -hmm. the value of knowing another language. And he's like, well... If we're going to be, you know, we want our society and our state to be competitive in that nature, well, we need to know another language. And so that's trickled down to how it's perceived. And there's other um, remnants of that in terms of motivation and autonomy, and there's had some trickle effects. So I think, you know, we've got a lot of, of good places to look at. I think it's, um, as I mentioned earlier today, it's it's largely I wish I could say it's a very technical issue of how to do it, but it comes down to mindset Mm -hmm. and how we're really looking at language. Is it a value? Is, um, you know, what do we feel it brings to our society in our context? And so... I think that's that's the main issue in, in dealing with this, and I, I hope that addressed your question to an extent.
0: It, it does. I always think of places in Europe, such as Holland or Belgium, and, and just like the notion, oh, gosh. yeah, yeah, the, the the idea that you would only speak Dutch is just <laughs> you would be you would be limiting yourself from a lot of opportunities, and it's just not even something they think about. Exactly. Um, so, and it's just really it's really different here.
1: And I'll just share one, one personal story on that note, which I think today plays a reason why I'm advocating so strongly for our, our kids, our English learners. So I'm I'm a native of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. I grew up there in a rural town, and I grew up with without speaking Spanish as my native language. Um, my mom and dad grew up speaking Spanish, but they made an intentional decision for their kids not to speak Spanish, and it's for very unfortunate reasons that I think play out in our society. Mm. One of them was, um, you know, they experienced discrimination and racism to the extreme when they were growing up. And they didn't want their kids to experience that same thing of them having an accent and people calling them out at that or for whatever reason. And so they made an intentional decision when they were raising kids to not have that. Fast forward to when I was 18, I clearly look Mexican, Latina, I, I mean, people will approach me in New York all the time speaking in Spanish, and thankfully, I'm able to respond now. But when I was 18, that bothered me. And um, and it was no one's fault but our society and, and kind of the perceptions with that. So I took it on my own nature to take some time before even college and lived in another country and lived in, in South America. Mm-hmm. And as I was older, it was a little bit more difficult to pick up, but I felt the value of that, of, of just who I am and my identity. And it wasn't until I went back to college and got to explore my roots and the why behind that and how inherently wrong that is. My, you know, my education was purposely ensuring that that was not maintained for my family,
0: mm-hmm.
1: stripped away. And now we have a lot of places where dual language, for example, is growing like crazy and uh, we're having a lot of non-second language speakers coming in in the droves, waiting, you know, <laughs> the, the the lists are, are are long because they see the value of having a second language yeah. where that's been stripped from many of uh, people in my context, right? And so it's a hard thing to swallow of like, wow, they, that's actually happened and I can't help but thinking about... You know, what we're doing for many of our students in in our public schools now and that message that whether we say it or not, mm-hmm. right, it 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 is coming off in how we've set up our schools and our systems and how we perceive speaking a second language.
0: So this is the last question. So given the, the mission and the existence of your organization, and, and thinking about what you just said, you must also experience either the tide is kind of turning, and I think you spoke about this a little bit or it's capable of turning, like no one would go to work every day doing something that they thought they could never accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. I I hope not. So what gives you hope that developers, the school leaders, and teachers can change how they teach English learners?
1: Sure. Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean, the hope is is really when you get to see actual examples of, of, of this working. And in the context of the classroom. So I try my best to show as many examples of when we raise the bar, the rigor for our English learners, what they're actually capable of Mm -hmm. is mind blowing. Um, And I think, so that's exciting. And to tie that into this work, I'm starting to see a couple of organizations um, that are developing content, um, particularly materials that are trying to be very strategic in how they do that. And they're seeking expertise from the English learner community that has been studying this for decades and kind of know know, what this looks like and what should be done. And also talking directly to teachers who have been doing this on a day in and day out basis. And so I think by encouraging these folks to come together on these ideas and what that looks like, that's really, really promising. And I think to turn the tide, I think it's gonna take a lot of work. But as I talk even to developers, I spoke at a conference once, and I can't tell you how many publishers actually came and gave me their card, and like, we want to work with you, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, they see the value. I would hope it's not for a uh, a profitable value of oh, well, the growing demographic. We got to hit places like California and Texas, yeah, right? Yeah. But I really do hope that they're seeing the value of of the in, the integration that's necessary in language and content, um, as we're talking about higher academic standards and. and Uh, moving forward. And the fact that, you know, there's places, there's state education agencies and districts that have been doing this that have also been reaching out and saying, hey, I think we got this stuff down. We really need, um, you know, and and just that openness to, you know, partner Mm -hmm. and say, we really need that kind of support. And so um, I think for me that that is a really positive sign that as even newer developers are creating good stuff out there, That question of, you know, what am I doing for my English learners is continuing to come up more and more. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, partnering with some of these developers. I've talked to a few of them that are really eager to partner and and work and learn. And I think that's a good sign to begin with. And not this mentality of we've got it figured out or we've been doing that and it's working when we know our educator, our educator workforce is saying, no, what's out here is not helpful. So I think it's it's also just recognizing that. And so I feel hopeful because of, you know, the fact that that has changed a bit. Um, and we're starting to see some really great, great stuff coming forward and, and interest in this work.
0: All right. Crystal, hey, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me. All right.